0: My name is Leon Pommers. I live in New York, in Forest Hills. I was born in 1914 in a very small town in Poland. At that time it was Russia, Pruzana, P-R-U-Z-A-N-A. There were 10,000 inhabitants, of which 6,000 were Jews. At an early age, when I was three years old, I touched a piano and I started to play. That was for me one of the most ecstatic experiences of my life and since then I have shown musical talent and I played the piano.
1: You're listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. From an early age, it was clear that Leon Palmers was a gifted musician. When he was just seven, his parents sent him to live with an aunt and uncle in Warsaw so that he could study piano. Three years later, his aunt and uncle left for Palestine and Leon returned to Pujana, where he lived with his parents and two sisters. His father was a successful businessman and, together with his four brothers, owned a local brewery. Leon's career as a concert pianist took off when he was still a young man. He landed a coveted spot at the State Conservatory of Music in Warsaw and performed across the country in concert halls, cafes, and theaters. In 1938, Leon's father died. Leon took on the responsibility of supporting his mother and younger sister. By this time, his older sister had married an American and emigrated to New York. Just one year later, on September 1st, 1939, Leon was in Warsaw when the Nazis invaded Poland. He was propelled on a perilous quest to join his sister in America. It is now more than a half-century later, and Leon is sharing his story with interviewer Toby Bloom dobkin at a community center in Forest Hills, Queens, in New York City. Leon is dressed in a crisp, tan suit, light blue shirt, and patterned maroon tie. He speaks with evident pleasure about some of his wartime adventures, despite the gravity of the circumstances in which he found himself.
0: On September 6th, a decree was issued by the mayor of Warsaw that all able-bodied men should leave Warsaw and and go east and regroup there and wait for developments in case of uh, to form a line of resistance. And I was one of those who left and went east. And I traveled by foot by by car and by every possible means. And I came to Vilna. And immediately contacted the American consulate, but the situation was terribly, terribly bad. And of course, the anxiety about my mother and my sister was terrible. The border between Vilno and the rest of of Poland, 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 was sealed. And we were separated separated from the rest of my family. I even tried to bring them through some uh, illegal means to cross the border with some guides and so on, but the guys were arrested. My mother came to the border, and she, she was sent back home. Something unexplainable happened. It was a miracle. One day, a rumor was spread, which happened, which happened to be true later. That somebody went, he had some personal contact with the Japanese uh, consulate in Kovno. Kovno was the capital of Lithuania, Kaunas. He went to see the consul and he's asking for a Japanese visa. The consul said to him that there, is, there isn't such a thing. There is no immigration visa to, to Japan. The only thing he can. Um, he can suggest, is a transit visa. In order to get a transit visa, he needs a destination visa. But in order to get a destination visa, you have to wait several years. Even more important than the visa was a Russian exit visa. It was an unheard of thing to emigrate from, to leave Soviet Russia. They gave us a very concrete answer. We will let you out, we will give you an exit visa, if you will have a visa to any neighboring country of Russia. Do you understand that the only neighbor do you know what was the only neighboring country unoccupied by Germany it was Japan? To think in Vilno about Japan, I don't think, I think to think about Mars now, it's much easier to visualize Mars than at that time to be in Vilno. And, and even the word Japan, sound. But, well, let's try. And this man went to Japan. That was how I, he went to the Japanese consul. And he said to him, the only thing I can advise you is to go to a Dutch consul and ask him for a visa to Kirasau in the, in the Caribbean. There wasn't even a Dutch consul. There was a, a commercial attaché who had a Philips store. He went to see him and he asked him for a visa, naively, for a visa to Curacao. He says, "What are you talking about? There isn't such a thing. There are no visas. You can, you will not enter with a visa. You need a permit from the governor." But, and that was really something incredible, "I'll give you, I'll give I make a stamp for you and put it on your passport, that you, as a Polish citizen, you don't need a visa to Curacao." Of course, you don't need a visa. It's worthless. And on the strength of this, he received a perfectly valid, wonderful Japanese transit visa for 10 days, which was a godsend gift. The next day, hundreds, if not thousands of people, among them, I was there too, in front of the Dutch consulate in Kovno. And I got this coveted Stem, uh, visa and I went to Japanese consul and I got my Japanese visa. And uh, January nineteen forty one, I left Vilna to Moscow, and from Moscow, twelve days and twelve nights through Siberia to Vladivostok. From there, a small boat, Japanese boat. We were uh, we were there. We were squeezed like sard like sardines in a box, but deliriously happy.
1: Who were your fellow uh, travelers, refugees. fellow passengers, refugees, Jewish?
0: Mm, almost, uh, almost everybody Yes, the arrival to Tsuruga. Heaven, flowers, the women dressed in, uh, in the kimonos, and everything is so beautiful and so fragrant. After the bleakness, after the grayness of Soviet Russia, it is for you, it, you cannot imagine the, the, the oppression there, the, the atmosphere. And to, to leave this behind. You know, the, all of us. After all, almost everybody left someone. We couldn't. It, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a leisurely trip. From there, and that was, you know, on the boat, we were met by the representatives of the Jewish community in Kobe. There were most of them Russian Jews from Manchuria who settled in Japan. And they gave us a blanket affidavit. Every Jew who lands in Japan is guaranteed to be supported, because the visa was for 10 days, actually, to be, to be uh, supported by the Jewish community. And that was acceptable for the Japanese authorities, under the condition that they will be, will be all centered in one town, for them to have a better control. That was a police state. Only in Kobe we we were allowed to live. That I arrived in Japan in February, 1941, February. And uh, I was hoping all the time to get my American visa. Each time something a delay, each time something new, each time was postponed. And this postponement and this delays lasted till July. And I was staying, I was prolonging each time for a couple of months. I succeeded. I answered an ad in a paper given by a Japanese violinist who looked for a pianist to accompany him, to work with him. He was a a Japanese aristocrat who was a terrible violinist. (laughs) He made my my life miserable musically, but he helped me a great deal with prolongation of the visas because he knew the authorities too. And this way I, I stayed as long as I could. But finally, in July, there was a verdict, some kind of a administrative verdict that we were not allowed to enter the United States anyway, at that time. So I was officially refused in July a visa to, to the United States, and I was left with nothing.
1: What were, and how long had you been in Tokyo, and what was your… Seven months. Could you uh, give me a, a picture of your life there, the its surroundings, maybe contact with, with both uh, other refugees and the local population?
0: Well, I stayed in Japan seven months, but my whole life, my, my whole life was centered on getting a visa to get out. That was the beginning and end of the day. And I wanted very much to practice. I wanted very much to practice. When I went to the piano the first time, I broke down, I cried. Where did you find the piano? I, pian- I found the piano in some kind of uh, of institution. I don't remember. Then another uh, interesting thing was that the press attache of the Polish embassy, who actually took me under his his uh, wings, he was himself a, a newspaperman and a writer. He arranged for me for a radio broadcast in the Tokyo radio. And I played this concert there. Then my fee, which was quite considerable. For me, it was a great, was in a, I've never seen it before in Poland, (laughs) in a beautiful envelope with a beautiful uh, ribbon. So, you know, all these manifestations of, of aesthetics in Japan were, for me, were something God sent. But what happens with my visa? One day, when I was sitting in a Polish consulate there, the consul tells me, let's go and see the ambassador. The ambassador tells, he, the consul asked me, where would you like to go? I said, if I can, for me, it would be the, I would, God send country, Canada, because it would be near my sister, and I would be able to proceed with my other plans to go. So, he went with me to the ambassador's quarters, and ambassador, did something quite unusual. He put his reputation on the line. What he did, he asked for an individual visa from the Canadian government. And I received a godsend gift. You can't imagine what it meant at that time to have a visa to Canada. But now begins another problem. There was no more boat available from, from Japan to Canada, no more commercial contact. To go to the United States, you cannot go, you have no transit visa. The only way from Japan to get to Canada was to go to Australia. How to get to Australia? You need a visa to Hong Kong and to the Dutch East India. You cannot get a visa unless you, your trip is paid because you are a refugee, nobody wants you five hundred dollars from Japan, through Shanghai. And you know that the Polish Embassy, together with the Hayas, you know Hayas, the Hebrew, they paid for my trip, to save a musician's life. They paid five hundred dollars. I landed in Shanghai, September 1941. I came to Shanghai with $5. It was terribly hot, humid, and I spent $4 on a white suit. And I walked with $1. But you know what, I'm telling you, I was much more carefree than now. It was absolutely impossible to get lost there. You had so many friends, so many groups who arrived before you.
1: During this period of uh, arriving uh, to eventually in in Tokyo, uh, and Shanghai. Did you have any, uh, were you able to have any contact with your family back home? Any not, kind of communication? not in,
0: only with my sister in America.
1: Uh-huh.
0: There it was impossible, impossible. I was in complete dark. The war was going on and the anxiety was terrible. Finally I left. I left October 41 which later I found out was the last boat before Pearl Harbor. Because I arrived in Australia the first days of December, a couple of days before Pearl Harbor. The whole thing is unreal. When I came to Sydney and I was standing on the, on the deck of the boat, I noticed somebody waving to me from afar on a motorboat. Somebody found out that I was arriving and brought me a contract to appear and to play in a little, in a, in a little theater, which, the, which our friends uh, established in, in Sydney. I had the job immediately. It was easier with a a music than, 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 than to be a lawyer. I stayed there for three months. But there was absolutely no possibility of going to Canada, because in the meantime, the war broke out. I got a call from the shipping company. There is a boat, a cargo boat, 9,000 tons. it's nothing, with 15 passengers on it, which goes from Australia, Sydney, to Vancouver, to Canada. Would they like to go? I said, yes. You know, that was a desperate uh, move because everything was uh, mined. The, And only uh, out of the five, another friend went with me. No one else wanted to take this chance. And I took the chance. I went on this boat. The boat changed its course every day without letting anyone know, because they were all afraid that uh, somebody will find out. And the captain changed it on, uh, gave the directions in the last moment. All the passengers, that's important for the story, all the passengers on the boat were mostly British and American citizens, and most of them were diplomats. Who, that was the only way of going to United States and to England from Australia uh, by, 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 this, by this boat. There were only two Polish refugees on this boat, but with perfectly valid Canadian visas. So of course it took us. It took us three weeks to travel. Small boat, you know, like a samovar, 9,000 ton, nothing. We came to to San Francisco, the day when MacArthur landed after this whole, uh, uh, this whole catastrophe in the Philippines. And it came directly from the State Department, from the, Defense Department, every available boat in the harbor of San Francisco should load military cargo and run back to Australia with uh, supplies for MacArthur. All the passengers left the boat because they were British and English and American diplomats. There were only two Polish averages left in the boat. What do you do with them? We were not allowed to go down to step down on American soil and we have no visa. Now begins the problem, the legal problem, what to do with us? How do we reach Canada? How to solve it? It was a nightmare. The immigration officer came on, on board and I told him, I my broken English, what shall we do? He says to me, he says that you'll be sent back to Australia. But I said, we have only a visa, one-way visa, an exit visa. We cannot go back. So we tried the name Brit there. We tried everybody. My sister, I called her up after so many years. Of the first telephone call to my sister. And uh, she was trying very hard here. She had some uh, connections. There was an article here in the paper here. They will we not allowed for the two refugees to sink. And the last day, exactly the last day, when the boat was ready to go back to Australia, came a directive from the State Department to give us an emergency visa for three days only to cross uh, from San Francisco to the Canadian border under guard the two criminals that we were. And the two of us went under guard to the British, to the Canadian border. That was the first time I heard on the border, welcome to our country. And I came to Vancouver in uh, February of 1942. You said in Canada, a year and a half. I was doing very well in Canada. I was, I was playing concerts for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So, from Vancouver, it was it was really smooth sailing already. I received my visa there, traveled through Toronto, and I crossed the United States in uh, Niagara Falls, in an old, dirty train. I th- hoped I will come, you know, <laughs> it would be a parade for me. I came across the border, and the immigration officer on the train asked me, also disheveled, asked me for my Passport and visa, you you with him. And he tells me, okay, Leon. I said, what do you mean, okay? Make some fuss, do something. It took me uh, almost two years to get it. Well, I came to New York and the rest is something. It's a different story. Here I am. At the moment I arrived here, I stayed with my sister in the beginning. And of course, the, you, you, you can imagine our meeting, especially with this tragic, situation with our, with our family, then it was...
1: Had you heard anything at all? Nothing
0: at all, until the end of the war. The first, not until, yes, until the end of the war. The first letter arrived in 1945. My town was liquidated, the ghetto in my town, in the last days of January of 43, and the first day of February. Our people were taken on, on sleighs. 12 kilometers from our town to the railroad station. And then they were sealed in the cars and transported to Auschwitz. And then my mother and my sister perished. Who, who? My sister was 17 years old. This is what happened. I was leading here a life as a professional musician. I was immediately started to concertize. And then I decided that the life of a traveling artist would be not too pleasant for, uh, in the old, in the later age. And I went back to school. And then I became, uh, I was in, I became member of the faculty. In, and I taught in Queens College from 68 till I retired from 85. I was a professor of music there. And then when I retired from college, I didn't want to retire from life, I am teaching now, there is a very good music college called the Mannes College of Music. I teach there.
1: Thank you. And I would like to, in conclusion, if you have any remarks that uh, you would like to conclude the interview with, uh, I would be interested in hearing.
0: Well, my remark, my concluding remarks is, first of all, I was met with so much with so much warmth and so much help in this country that I shall be always grateful for every moment of my life here from beginning to end i am i'm really i'm grateful for every moment i live in this country and uh, it at least it helped me to it helped me in my renewal and thank you for asking me to come here
1: thank you very much for coming Palmer's was issued his transit visa by Shiyune Sempo Sugihara. He was the Japanese diplomat who risked his job and his life to save 5,558 Jews desperate to flee Europe. When Leon arrived in New York in 1943, he moved in with his sister in the Bronx. He quickly reestablished his career as a concert pianist and composer. Ten years later, he was introduced to Irene Perlman, who had also escaped Poland during the war. Irene was a widow with a young daughter named Alice, and soon the three were sharing a small house in Forest Hills where Leon's piano filled the living room. Alice Greenwood recalls that her stepfather was like a rock star. He dressed up in tie and tails, she said, and performed at Carnegie Hall, and then we went to the Russian Tea Room. At home, he never came to the dinner table without a jacket on. Nina Hirsch remembers her great uncle as a joyful man. He came to the Bronx for my half-birthday, she said, with half the cake, half the amount of candles, and got on the piano and played half of a birthday song. He could play happy birthday about 10,000 ways. As a child, it was everything to me. Leon Palmers died on June 7th, 2001. He was 86. To learn more about Leon Palmers, please visit our companion website at thosewhowerethere.org. It includes episode notes, a full transcript, and archival photographs. That's where you can also find our previous episodes and background information on the Fortunoff Video Archive and the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at the Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department in New Haven, Connecticut. This second season is a co-production with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust, New York's contribution to the global responsibility to never forget. The Museum is committed to the crucial mission of educating diverse visitors about Jewish life before, during, and after the Holocaust. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, the Fortunoff Archives director, Stephen Naren, and Trevor Walsh, Collections Project Manager at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Thank you to audio engineer John Gordon. Thanks as well to Christy Bailey Tomachek, Joanna Arruda, Noah Guto Ellis, and Inga Dattaya for their assistance. And thank you to Sam Cassow for historical oversight and to photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael Leclerc, and our social media team, including Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Sarah Barber. Leova Zherbin composed our theme music. Thank you as well to Alice Greenwood and her family for providing archival photographs and background information. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening.